0: One of the, the things that was true about me growing up and is still somewhat to me, true to me, excuse me, to this day, is I always struggled, but especially as a young kid with motion sickness, with motion sickness. Now, most of the time when you struggle with motion sickness, you can kind of manage it. So for instance, when we would take field trips to, I lived in Southern California to like Disneyland, I knew I just wasn't gonna go on very many rides. Lots of kids loved roller coasters. I said, that makes me puke. Why would I go on that, right? And there were kind of ways that, that I could avoid it. But one of the things that I had to do periodically, that, that many of us have to do, that I couldn't really avoid the feeling was when I would have to fly. I'd have to fly and I hated turbulence when I was a kid. I hated turbulence. And I remember when I was younger, probably in elementary, junior high, high school age, every time that any little bump would happen, I would just sit white knuckled. And not I would think, this is it, we're going down. We're going down. I watched the Tom Hanks movie where the flight crashed and he had to live forever on the island. I'm like, that's going to be my life. This is going to happen right now. And then nothing would happen. I was like, okay. I remember someone wants to try and assure me about my irrational fear of turbulence on an airplane told me, well, you know that almost all accidents on airplanes happen within about 60 seconds of takeoff and landing, which makes for the rest of the flight, but then imagine how I felt the first 60 seconds when the plane took off. I would literally count down from 60 to zero in my head and then I would think maybe I counted too fast, I better do it again. But I would always be panicked and anytime any bump or turbulence hit, I wouldn't know what to do and I would just start to to get all up and anxious and upset and worried. And so finally I figured out this system, which I think I subconsciously still do to this day, that when I sit on an airplane, I wanna find someone, hopefully a stewardess or a pilot who's not flying the plane, but is sitting back. I wanna find someone who works on an airplane and if they look calm, I can be calm, right? Because I know that if something serious is happening, the stewardess isn't just going to be sitting there flipping on her phone or reading through a magazine. She's going to be put to action. And I remember suddenly when the bumps would hit and I would look over if they were fine, then somehow that meant, okay, and I assured myself that even though I felt like life was bouncing up and down and chaotic, that things were actually okay. Sometimes in life, it feels like our lives are caught in the middle of turbulence, doesn't it? Like it's bouncing up and down and we're not quite sure when the next bump is going to hit. So what do we have to hold on to in the midst of turbulent times? What can we look to to assure us amidst all the ups and downs and the bumps of life? Well, if you have your Bibles with you tonight, would you open them, please, to the book of Habakkuk. The book of Habakkuk, the full text for tonight, will also be in the handout um, that you received when you came in. As we're continuing our series by looking at the second half of chapter 2, this book of Habakkuk. Now, if, if you've missed or if you've just forgotten from the last couple of weeks, Habakkuk was a prophet who lived in ancient times. And at his time, he looked forward to what was going to happen to the nation. And they were living in times of extreme injustice and corrupt. And, and Habakkuk cried out to God in chapter 1, God, why is this happening and how long will you stand by? And God said, I'm going to do something that's going to amaze you. I'm going to use the most wicked pagan nation on earth and they're going to come invade you. Habakkuk's like okay that's not what I was expecting and then he cries out again in the second half of chapter one and God answers again in the first half of chapter two on how he needs to then be faithful the righteous will live by faith and God lists out now today we're going to look at this the second half of chapter two as God's full response to what he's going to do to these wicked people to this wicked nation. And as we look at this, it will give us tonight three assurances for us in turbulent times. Habakkuk lived in days and ages where he didn't know what was going on. He wasn't sure what God was doing. And this is God's message to him. And this is true for us in our lives even still today. So Habakkuk chapter 2, starting at verse 6, says this. Shall not these take up their taunts against him? with scoffings and riddles for him and say, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own and for how long, who loads and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the peoples of the earth shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Habakkuk is given here by God five statements that start with the same word. Basically they all start with the word woe. Woe is a word of of judgment on someone or something. And if you're familiar with scripture, you know this is used outside of just Habakkuk. This is used in other prophetic books and this is actually used by Jesus himself. If you've been a part of Sunday night service for all, you m- remember that last spring we spent 7 weeks looking at Jesus in Matthew 23 as he gave these 7 woes, these 7 statements of judgment to the Pharisees. So this is God declaring these judgments down and this first judgment towards the Babylonians is for this ill-gotten gain that they have come. And the the punishment that they've inflicted on others will then be inflicted on themselves. The second, woe was in verse 9, it says this, "'Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house. By cutting off many peoples, you have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond.'" This idea of who gains evil for his house literally just wasn't one person in their household, but it meant a representation of the whole country. And it's this, the house itself, a figure of speech is crying out against the evil that is done. That Babylon has sought security in its own accomplishments. That's this idea of you've built a nest. It's this safe and secure place where they can go. And God says that's not going to keep you safe from all that you've done. But God starts here with this promise that their wickedness that the Babylonians have inflicted on all people, God has seen and God will act on their behalf. The first assurance in turbulent times that we're given in this passage is that God will judge. God will judge. Habakkuk looked out at a time where injustice was everywhere. And he wondered, what, when will God, what will God do? And God promises him that all this evil that he sees, God sees and God will judge them because of the evil that they have done. And that he is a God of justice as well. That the, he is a God who judges and he is a God of justice. So the wrongdoing that Habakkuk witnessed in the world, all this wrong, God says, I see it and I will judge it according to my character and in my time. And we see throughout the scripture that God is a God who judges people. Not just back in the Old Testament, but each and every one of us. The Bible says in the New Testament that it's appointed for us to live once and after we die comes judgment. For each and every one of us. See this idea of God being a God of justice who will judge people is both a freeing idea as well as a restraining idea for us. In one sense, it's a freeing idea because if God is a God of justice who will take care of all the evils on earth, that means you don't have to do it yourself. Which is why Paul says this in the book of Romans. He says this, Romans chapter 12. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, Feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. See, the idea that God will judge all evil in the world is freeing because it means that we no longer need to pursue vengeance on our own, but we can place our trust in God. And in the midst of turbulent times, in the midst of hardship, maybe even times where you feel like you've been wronged, God being a God who judges evil means that it's not your responsibility and you don't have to do it. But it also doesn't just mean that the wrong inflicted to you will be gone for free. That person gets off. But God is the one who perfectly judges all the evil that is done in the world. And in turbulent times, when it doesn't seem like life makes sense, we can rest in that fact that God is the God who judges others, but we don't need to. One of the most famous works of literature, perhaps in English, although it's not English, perhaps in history, is the book The Count of Monte Cristo. The Count of Monte Cristo, one of my favorite novels, not the abridged version, but like the 800 something page, the huge version that's daunting to look at. It can double as a weapon. It's so heavy and thick. In the Count of Monte Cristo, it's on one character whose name is, it's centered on his name is Edmond Dantes, who at the start of the book, life is going well for him. He's about to be named the captain of a ship. He, he is engaged, and on his wedding day, he is accused for wrongdoing. He is falsely accused. He is arrested and be, betrayed by his best friend, and then imprisoned without trial, where he then sits for years and years and years. Until he finally is able to get his own release. And then for about four-fifths of the book, as Edmond Dantes goes, finds treasure, comes back as the Count of Monte Cristo. And for a large part, the majority of the book is not his story of freedom, but his story of exacting vengeance. Not just on the people who wronged them, but on every person in their life who they love as well. I once saw this character map of everyone who is in the book of the Count of Monte Cristo. And it looked like one of those wild conspiracy theories. Like with all the circles and the lines going everywhere. And he played multiple people with multiple personalities. But his life revolved around one thing. Anyone who's ever wronged me, I'm going to pay them back myself. I'm going to get them back. Because that's human nature. When we've been wronged, we want to be the ones who bring others to justice how we see it based on how they've wronged us. But as followers of God, we rest in the fact that if God is the judge, we don't, we don't, aren't the ones, excuse me, who are called to exact justice for others. But we're to rest in the fact that God will do that. And so we're free to forgive, to bless, to love even those who we would say are enemies So there's a freeing sense to this fact that God sees the evil in the world and will judge. But there's also this restraining sense as well. A restraining sense because this judgment comes quickly. Look at verse 7. It says, Will not your debtors suddenly arise? Will not it suddenly arise? I remember, have you ever heard someone make this statement like, Well, you shouldn't judge me for how I live my life. Only God can judge me. Only God can judge me. Whenever someone says that to me, I just want to be like, yeah, but do you know what that means for you though? Like you wish I was judging. You don't want God to be the one who judges. Like his judgment is a lot more harsh and, than, than mine is because he's perfect. He's holy. He's just. He knows all things. God's judgment is not something that we can just be like, oh, that's fine. If we're living in sin. If we're apart from Christ, the judgment of God should be a very scary thing in our world. And for the Babylonians, it was to terrify them, to move them back towards God. Because if we stand opposed to God, the justice of God means that he stands against us as well. So God will judge all the evil on the earth. And he promises that to Habakkuk as he calls out these woes on the Babylonians. But the hard part for us living on this side of eternity is we don't know when that will happen. And some of you tonight have been wronged by others. And there's injustice in your life. And you cry out, God, in this turbulent time, why haven't you taken care of it? Why haven't you resolved it? Why haven't they been punished yet? The reality is we don't know why God chooses the timing that he does but as followers of Jesus Christ in the midst of turbulent times and hardship and difficulty, we need to rest in the fact that God is the one who will judge all people. And it's not our responsibility to do that for him. He continues with the third woe in verse 12. He says this, Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, Is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. This third woe that's seen there in verses 12 to 14 is this cry out to those who are a slave. They were slave masters as they pursued their own wealth at the expense of others. But the cry there in verse 14, which we'll get back to, is that one day the earth will be filled with, all of the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God's glory. And the fourth woe, we see that the Babylonians didn't just accumulate wealth, but they actively humiliated others on their own path towards their own gain. Literally, the idea is there that they would get other people drunk just to shame and to expose them for their own gain. And the metaphor is then flipped from them giving this cup of drunkenness to others to then this cup in verse 16 is in the Lord's right hand. The judgment that God has is in his hand and it will come back to them. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm them as well. But verse 14 has this phrase that it's not their shame will come upon their glory at the end of 16, but instead of them being glorified in verse 14, it says, the earth will be filled of not the knowledge of the glory of the Babylonians, but the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. See, the second truth to hold on to in turbulent times is that God will be glorified. God will be glorified in the world. This promise that that. Habakkuk has is still something that we look forward to. This time that the whole earth will be filled with God's glory. The prophet Isaiah put it this way in Isaiah chapter 11, looking forward to the Messiah's second coming. Not the first coming, which we celebrate in a few weeks, but into the second coming, which we all still look forward to. He says this in Isaiah chapter 11, starting at verse 6, "...the wolf shall dwell with the lamb." And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze; their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the wean child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's this idea that someday that we can look forward to, all of creation will live in perfect unity as God makes it as it was once intended to be. But the Babylonians intended for their fame and for their name to fill the earth, and they went by any means about doing that and God says that is futile because there's only one name whose glory will fill the earth and that's the name of God Almighty. And they were pursuing their own fame for their own gain at the expense of others. But God says, no, God is the one who will be glorified in the world, not other people. So what is the glory of God that will spread throughout the whole earth? The glory of God could be described as his essential being as he reveals himself to mankind. Who God really is, his essential essence and being as he reveals himself to us. And God's glory is seen throughout Scripture in powerful, powerful ways. One of the most amazing stories in the Old Testament is in Exodus chapter 33, where Moses (coughs) asked for God to show him his glory. He prays, God, show me your glory. And God's response is, I will come over you, but you cannot see my face, for no one can see my face and live. In other words, I am too great, I am too far beyond your comprehension that you are not able to see me and live. That's how great God's glory is. But God's glory isn't just something that that we wonder and a mystery for us, because the full revelation of God's glory is seen not in some substance as God moves past people, but actually in his son, Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 Verse 6 says this For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. See, the glory of God sweeping over the earth means that the knowledge of Jesus Christ and who he is sweeps over the earth. Everything we need to know about how great God is, we can know by simply looking at who Jesus is, and we can't see his face. That in Jesus is all of who God is. And we look forward to this day as God promises, as scripture prophesies, where this injustice, all the wickedness, the turbulence, the hardship that we see in our earth will one day be gone. As it's God's name being glorified and the world being as he originally designed it to be. But God's name and fame to be known by all is so often not the desires and the actions and the motivations of our own hearts. See, our world, like the Babylonians, is so much often focused on our glory, not on God's glory. We want to be known. We want to see fame. And so often it's not God who's the focus of our lives, but our own selves who are the focus of our own lives. We see this not just in our own hearts, but in culture as well around us. Do you know what, according to most studies, do you know what the preferred profession of most teenagers today in the United States is? When I was a teenager, it was probably, I don't know, a fireman, a police officer, an astronaut, something cool like that. Do you know what the number one preferred profession amongst young people today is? To be a YouTube star. To be a YouTube star. Not a movie star, not a rock star, to be a YouTube star. They want to work on YouTube. There's this new thing which you probably have heard about, new in the last several years, called a social media influencer. Have you heard about these people? Influencers. You might think it's a gimmick, but did you know that companies through social media influencers made more money than they did on all print marketing last year? Don't sell ads anymore, they pay certain people who look a certain way and have a certain image to represent them to the world. This industry is worth billions and billions of dollars. And what it's all about is people seeking their own fame and their own glory so that other people can see them and want to be like them. And what this passage reminds us of is the emptiness of that as the Babylonians sought after their own fame, their own glory going forth. And God says, no, it's just my glory that the whole earth will see. There's an emptiness in life. If our heart's desire is to seek after our own glory our own fame, our own notoriety. But fullness in life, even in the midst of hardship, is in holding on to the glory of God. That our lives aren't about our name going forth, but about God's glory being known by others. The fifth woe in Habakkuk chapter two is seen here in verse 18, says this. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it a metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. This fifth woe is this woe against idolatry. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake and to a silent house arise. Silent stone, excuse me. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver and there is no breath at all in it. There's this, this awesome idea as the prophets often talk about idols back then, which literally they were often, people would worship figures of, of idols that they would create with their own hands and then bow down. And it often talks about the futility of that. I love this idea that the idols that they have created are speechless idols there in verse 18. And that's a common phrase used throughout the prophets, that the idols are speechless idols because they're contrasted with the God of the Bible. Idols are speechless. The God, the Bible, speaks one word and creation comes into existence. God says one thing and galaxies are formed by the word of his mouth. And idols can't even utter a sound. And he's comparing them, these things that people contrast with them, saying idols can't stand up to God. And he, he calls out these questions to a silent stone, arise. Can it teach? they calling awake, arise. It's reminiscent of the prophet Elijah when he was on Mount Carmel. And he was having kind of this, uh, an old-fashioned duel between the God of the Bible and the gods of Baal. And, and the gods of Baal were offering the sacrifice and it was the God would come down and light it on fire. And they were dancing and performing all of their rituals and Elijah standing off to the side provoking them. And he goes, hey guys, maybe your God's asleep. Try yelling louder. One time that he goes, hey, maybe your God's taking a bathroom break. Why don't you knock on the bathroom door and see if then he's coming. But they wouldn't because the idols are empty gods versus the God of the Bible. See this third cry with this last reminder in verse 20. That the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him is this reminder that even in turbulent times, it's God who will be worshiped. It's that God is the God who is worthy of our worship. He ends this, God ends this with God is in his holy temple. This idea of his holy temple isn't the temple somewhere in Israel, but God is in heaven. Psalm chapter 11 verse four says, the Lord is in his holy temple, the Lord's throne is in heaven. And Habakkuk here shows the contrast between worshiping an idol and worshiping the true and living God and the futility that there is in spending our lives seeking fulfillment in things that aren't the God of Scripture. So what, what does idolatry look like today? Because I doubt that if I were to go into many of your homes or apartments or condos, I would see images formed from wood and gold and silver that you have made with your own hands that you've literally bowed down to at night. But that doesn't mean that we don't have idols in our lives still today. We create idols in our hearts all the time. when so we make good things to be ultimate things and take the place of God in our lives. A few questions to think about the idols that we worship rather than worshiping God. One question is this, what demands your focus and your affections? What demands your focus Sometimes we focus a lot more on our careers and our job than on our relationship with God. We focus so much on our career and we're like, oh yeah, and I'll pray a little bit before and I'll try and read my Bible for two minutes. And sometimes it exposes in our hearts that we actually made an idol out of work. Another question about idolatry is this, from what do you derive your meaning to what do you look to tell you who you are and assign value to you? Some of us have made an idol out of love in our lives. We've made an idol out of love and to be loved and to receive love. It's a good thing, but we've made it an ultimate thing. And we'll pursue love at any cost and it's become an idol. And we're worshiping this idea of love rather than worshiping God. Another question about idolatry. Where do you find security or comfort or shelter? For some of us, the money in our bank accounts has become an idol. Then we just need to save a little bit more, put a little bit more into retirement, get a little further along, and then we'll feel secure. A little bit more is all every single one of us needs if we have the idol of money in our lives. Who are you trying to please and whose opinion counts most in your lives? Is it God's or is it the opinion of someone else? Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, talking about idolatry, points out that in scripture, when when the Bible talks about idolatry, it says that we, it uses three metaphors on how we relate to idols. Idols are things that we love, things that we then trust, and things that we obey. Idols are things that we love, that we trust, and that we obey rather than God. And we buy into the lies that they tell us over and over again. There are so many passages outside of just here in Habakkuk that talk about the futility of idolatry. But one of them is found in Isaiah chapter 46. It says this, starting in verse 5. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god, then they fall down and worship? They lift it to their their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place, and it stands there, but it cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. See, you can worship an idol, but ultimately in your time of need and desperation, it won't help. It won't come, and it won't save you. Suffering exposes the idols of our hearts. Suffering exposes what it is that we're truly worshiping. Because oftentimes, as has been said, we don't realize that Jesus is all we need until Jesus is all we have. And for some of us, God has had to take us through the process of painfully pulling the idols out of our lives until literally Jesus is all we have left. And then that's when we realized that's what we needed to be seeking for all along. This passage teaches us that idolatry is empty, but there's the God who is in heaven who is worthy of worship. This idea, this last verse, that the earth is to be kept silent before him doesn't mean that you shouldn't pray, but it's this idea of a silence, a reverential awe as God enters into his court. It reminded me of Hebrews chapter 12, where it says that that we should be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us offer to God, acceptable worship, get this, with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire that we should worship God with reverence and with awe. See, Habakkuk cried out to God. He said, God, where are you? Where are you? What are you doing? And at the end of God's answer, he reminded Habakkuk, amidst all the ups and downs, the trouble, the turmoil of your life, no matter how hard it's been to see me, where have I been? I've been on my throne, ruling over all things. See, in all of life, no matter what you're going through, God is still on the throne today. God is still on the throne. And no matter what happens to us, because God is a God who is over all things, our hearts can still respond in worship to him no matter the circumstances of our lives See, our worship in our hearts is often way too much based on circumstances. We love to celebrate good things. We love to give thanks for all that God has given us, which we should. But worship is also something that we do through our tears. Worship is something we do to God through confusion, through hardship, through pain. See, this is a reminder that God is the only God that's worthy of our worship that all the idols of our own hearts are empty. And that even in the midst of the most turbulent times that Habakkuk lived, God said, "'I'm still ruling and reigning over all things.'" No matter how turbulent your life may feel tonight, whether you're in a little bumps or whether the plane feels like it's in a free fall right now, I just wanna remind you tonight, God is still on the throne. God is still on his throne. He is still ruling and reigning over all things. And that should bring us profound comfort when our life doesn't make sense to know that no matter what we feel, God is still reigning. God, we thank you that you are indeed the God worthy of our worship and that you still reign today. God, that you reign over all things things. God, may we worship you tonight, not just in the good, but in the hard and the difficulty and the struggles of life as well. We thank you that in all of the turbulent times of our lives, you are with us, you will judge all evil and wrong, and you are a God who seeks for your glory to be made known. pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.